scripture lesson this morning comes to us from John's gospel, the fourth chapter. We're going to be in verses 3 through 30, and then we're going to pick back up with verse 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had gone through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to her, him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place of worship must be in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is indeed now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him, God in spirit, and those who worship him must worship in, in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one you are speaking to. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking to a woman, but no one said anything. What do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left, left her water jar, went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Many Samaritans from the city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. I give thanks that we are journeying through a series called Love Where You Live, where together we've been thinking about how do we love those who are closest to us? How do we love the place where we sleep? Love our family members and our friends through difficult conversations and admitting when we don't know all that we might should know or that we're trying to know. 
Last week, we talked about love where you walk. How do we love our neighbors? How do we reach out to those who are around us? How do we act like good neighbors? And how do we pray for the people who live right next door? This morning, we're going to talk about how we love where we drive. Essentially, how do we love our city, love the places where we live? So will you pray with me as we get started? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. You know, I think it's funny how we see the places we live is in very different light after we've been living there for a while. Maybe you've lived in Mobile a while, or maybe you've moved here recently, but after a few months in a new city, our perception of the place begins to change, does it not? I mean, when you first move to a new place, when you first moved here, you have to use your GPS to get just about anywhere, pulling up the Google Maps to figure out how to get from one place to another. But after a few months, you establish regular routes to common locations and the drive becomes old hat. Sometimes you end up in a place not knowing how you even got there, right? Like the drive is all a daydream and the time between the two places feels as if it never happened. It's a little bit scary. I remember when we first moved to Mobile, I was constantly raving about how many great eateries there are in this city. In comparison to Montgomery, where I moved from, and Dothan, where I grew up, the number of great local restaurants seems to be a luxury of riches in Mobile. I said as much to our friends Clark and Morgan Kennedy before they moved to Atlanta, and they said that they didn't think Mobile had that many great places to eat. And it was because they grew up here and they'd been here for a long time, and so they didn't take into account all the new places that had opened up in recent years. But like them, after living here a few years, my family has gotten into a routine of picking up food that is convenient and less frequently we're sampling all of our fine cuisine in this city. We find ourselves lamenting that there aren't enough good options between our house and the church. You know, here in Mobile, we even have an entire season dedicated to parades and parties. Our first year in Mobile, we went to a Mardi Gras parade when Brianna was seven months pregnant. And because of our ignorance, we got locked into the grid of barricades and we had the privilege of watching the same parade three times. This past year, however, we knew the layout well enough to know exactly where to park in order to see the parade with August at its very beginning, make it back to our car and drive home traffic free all the way, even before the lead float had made it halfway up downtown. It's amazing how a place changes when it becomes so familiar, right? How when something loses its newness, we don't see it with fresh eyes. You know, if you think we know our city, front ways and back, imagine what it was like to live in a time with no cars, with significantly fewer roads. In the first century, there were not nearly as many sections of a particular town as we have here in Mobile. And travel to a different city was a much different experience prior to the invention of the interstate. As the crow flies, 
It's roughly 60 miles between Galilee and Jerusalem. That's the equivalent of going from here to Atmore or from Mobile to Pensacola. It's not all that far in today's travel standards. However, most of us have not had to make that journey on foot or on the back of a donkey. Jesus and his disciples, however, they traveled that distance many times, not only throughout the recorded stories in the Bible, but on many more occasions throughout the course of their lives, visiting the holy city for festivals and festivities. Imagine how intimately familiar you become with a city or with the travel between cities if you make that journey several times on foot, painstakingly noticing every detail of the landscape along the way so many times that it becomes old hat. The knowledge they had of their entire city and the few cities they traveled between was likely exponentially more specific than that which we have of our own. What with us being limited to noticing things through the car windshield or regularly seeing just the same few roads on any given week. And so when they made their journey from the northern part of Israel near the Sea of Galilee to the southern part where we find Jerusalem, they always tried their best to move somewhat hurriedly through the bad parts of the trip, the less desirable neighborhoods, if you will, particularly they were not fond of lingering in Samaria. In fact, Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, remarks that many Jewish travelers would seek a longer route to get to Jerusalem just to circumvent the area of Samaria so they could avoid Samaritans altogether. But Jesus, Jesus was not like many of the first century travelers. On the journey that's accounted for in John's gospel, Jesus opted for the route that went straight through the heart of Israel and took them directly through Samaria. And that is a setting for today's scripture lesson. Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And as the disciples go into the nearby town called Sakar to find some food, Jesus lingers by the well that John tells us was named for his ancestor, Jacob. And he's resting there and as he's there, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water from the well. And I'm pretty sure that we preachers point out all too frequently about this relationship. But just as a quick history lesson, Jews and Samaritans do not get along. All of its origins from their, for their bitter rivalry center on differing opinions about where the proper place to worship is. The Jews thought it should be in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans thought it should be on this mountain where Jesus is passing through. That's where Jacob's well was. So Jesus is resting on this well and a Samaritan woman walks up. And I bet in her mind, she's probably thinking, oh great, a Jewish man. But when she got there, Jesus said to her, give me some water. And I have to admit, real quick, I do think it was kind of rude that Jesus didn't say, will you please give me some water? I mean, my grandmother would have drilled me with that, you better check your attitude look, had I not said please when asking for something. But Jesus says to the woman, give me some water. And the woman is shocked. I mean, she is stunned. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. 
Not only did Jews and Samaritans not share things, a Jewish man seldom would interact with a woman, not his wife or a member of his close circle. So Jesus here is committing a double no-no. He is asking for something from a Samaritan. And on top of that, he is asking it of a Samaritan woman. So Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was asking you, you would ask him, give me a drink. And he would have given you living water. And the woman kind of laughs at him and says, sir, you have no bucket and the well is so deep. Where would you get living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? Are you better than Jacob? I mean, he's the one who gave us this well and it was him and his flocks that drank from it. So she draws in this common ancestor of theirs. She knows that their history of cultural feud, and, but also knows that there's some commonalities as well. And so she invokes the name of Jacob and, and Jesus in his most Jesus-y way replies to her and says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. You know, with high insight, we pick up on the fact that Jesus is obviously no longer talking about actual water. But the woman does not yet seem to understand that. She says to him, sir, Give me some of this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus is trying to reveal something about himself to the woman, yet she doesn't quite get it yet. She asks Jesus, give, give me whatever it is that you're talking about, because that, that's what I, I don't want to have to come here to draw water anymore. So Jesus decides to go ahead and move this encounter along, and he tells her, go call your husband and come back. And the woman's like, I don't have any husbands. And Jesus says, oh, I know. You've had five husbands and you're with somebody right now who's not your husband. And I bet her eyes just got like super wide, right? And she's, she's like, sir, whoa, I see that you're a prophet. This is when she starts to realize there's something different about this guy. He knows more about her than maybe he originally let on. She thinks he's a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah. And she goes on to say, you know, our ancestors used to worship. We, we've always worshiped on this mountain. But you say the place where people must worship, it's in Jerusalem. And this is it. She's baiting him. She's like, fine, if you're so smart, solve the age old dispute. I mean, this is the crux of their differences. And she wants this wise man to tell her where is the real place of worship? Who's right, y'all or us? And Jesus said to her, you worship what you do not know. And we worship what we know because salvation comes from the Jews. But the hour is coming. In fact, it's now here. When the true worshipers will worship their father in spirit and in truth. For the father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Though an experience and, and through this experience of, of commonality, Jesus attempts to break down their societal barriers, the things that separate their two people groups. He's telling her, it's actually neither of us. It's both of us. We can all worship. But this alone doesn't seem to satiate the woman's curiosity. 
So she pushes it one step further. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all these things to us, just like you're doing. And Jesus said to her, kind of like with a wink and a nod, I'm he, I'm the one, the one who's speaking to you. Just then though, the disciples, they came back and they were astonished at what they saw. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But nobody had, you know, the gumption to say, what are you doing? Why are you speaking with her? I mean, there's this, this scene now where it looks like Jesus is doing something bad, right? Like the disciples walk up on him in the middle of some scandalous act in a movie, right? But then the woman left her water jar and ran back to the city. And she said to everybody, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Do you think he could be the Messiah? And you know why I think she runs away? Why she immediately goes and tells people to come meet this guy that might be the Messiah. I think it's because somebody finally took notice of her. And not just anyone. Christ, the Messiah, stopped to talk to her and was willing to offer her the water of everlasting life. This is a woman in a culture where men treated women poorly. This is a culture where the world treated Samaritans poorly. This is a Samaritan woman who had many husbands and now is with a man who is not her husband. And that is one of the most societally damning labels she could have on her. Here is a woman that no one thought anything about. Nobody cared anything about was likely ridiculed and mocked. Yet Jesus broke the rules. Jesus reached out to her, talked to her, offered her the greatest gift, offered her living water. I wonder how many places in our city go unnoticed. I wonder how many people in our city go overlooked. Do you think the problems of our city, of our country, of our entire world, might have something to do with the fact that the people who are in positions to make a difference do not even know the things that need to be changed? I tend to think so. I think we get so caught up in our own little worlds of driving from work to home or home to the grocery or from church to the ball field that we seldom leave the people who make us feel comfortable. We, we rarely leave the places that we're always occupying. We are unable to see the rest of the needs of the city because we don't see the rest of the city. It makes sense for us to donate to organizations that we already know so well, like our schools or the arts, or the medical communities. And all of those are good things. Please don't hear me say they're not. But what about all the other places? What about all the other things that are going on? What about the other needs that are overlooked and unnoticed? What about the people that go overlooked and unnoticed? Like the Samaritan woman. I mean, that is the difference Jesus is making in this story. He is willing to go into a part of the country that is often avoided by most of his friends, right? To talk to people that are often overlooked. And he made this person, this woman, feel worthy of the greatest gift anyone could ever receive. That's how you love where you live. That's how you love the people who live beside you. So what would it mean for us to love our city in the same way? What would it look like for us to love where we drive, 
the places we can reach by car. Well, for one thing, I am proud to be a part of a church that is already asking some of those questions, and it has been for a long time, and is trying to do that work. In a few weeks, our Society of St. Stephen's ministry will start back up. This is a ministry that works with persons in financial hardship to help them through their struggles. Likewise, last week, our Meals on Wheels ministry started back up. This is a group that is taking food to people who are not able to leave their homes. It is literally a way of seeing people that no one else throughout the week might see. But I believe that these two ministries could be so much bigger, so much more impactful. There's opportunities beyond what we're already doing. And our ability as a church to see those who are unseen in our city is so much greater than what we've already tapped into. And so this week, I want you to do two things. The first is, I want you to do some research. Yeah, kind of like it's summer school, so all, everybody. Students, adults, parents, kids. I want you to learn about one of our compassion ministries in the church that you might not know much about. Maybe it's learning about the Meals on Wheels or the Society of St. Stephen's. Maybe it's Joy for Johnny or the Prayer Shawl Ministry. I mean, our church has a host of options for you to plug into so you can serve and love this city. You can find more about these informa- more information about these ministries on our website, or you can call or email Kathy Jorgensen and she'll give you all sorts of information. Granted, not all of these ministries are up and running at the moment because of our current COVID restrictions, but take the time to learn about them so you'll be ready to jump in when they do call for new volunteers. And the second thing I want you to do is take a drive. Maybe it's on your way home from work, or from lunch, on your way home from the pool. Take the kids. Turn down some streets you don't often venture down. Take a different route so you don't zone out on everything around you. And look at the different parts of our city. See what God might be showing you. Notice what you might often overlook. And as you do so, pray that God might show you what need or what person or what group you might be able to add value to. Who or what might you be able to offer the greatest gift we can ever give, the gift of the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. May we be a church that sees our city and looks for ways to love where we live. And like Christ, taking the time to sit and talk to somebody who often other people would not. May we see the unseen. May we reach out and learn about the needs that maybe we haven't heard about before. And in that way, making the kingdom of God known on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.